Father, uh, I just would put out my hands and say, uh, there are things that go beyond our ability to, to sometimes even comprehend, let alone translate into things we can do. We try to fix problems all day long when people come to us asking for advice or with frustrations or with worry. We're fixers by nature. And then when we are kind of confronted with something like this, God, we, we recognize our helplessness. Um, and in that, we want to hold on through faith that in all things you can somehow work for good, that you are sovereign, that you do care. And so we just want to humbly come underneath you and say, God, um, please help these people. Please give us the insights, the desire, the ability to be sacrificial in loving our fellow man, um, giving our lives for other people the true definition of love, doing for others what we would desperately want them to, uh, to have us do, or, or that we would desperately want them to do for us if we were in the same position. So I just pray that you wouldn't let us just turn it into the background noise of everything else that's going on. I pray that you'd give us the maturity not to think that it's the only suffering in the world. I pray that you'd somehow use it in our discipleship or growth process that we would become more attuned just with the human condition, with suffering, with, with our ability to help others, to love others, to sacrifice, to heal, to play the role of doctor, just, just grow us up. Make the vain things feel vain. Let vanity feel like vanity, God, so that our time and our money can be used by you for more important things. Not only in this situation, but in other ones as well, Father. And we just pray for, for Diana. We pray for others that are down there, that are serving. Let them know that we are behind them, that we care, that we think, that we're praying. Um, just comfort them and bring them times of refreshing. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. So my thought process um, was simply just bang, bang, bang getting to this subject, and that's talking about human suffering just as a broad category. Human suffering, not as an instance, but just as a, a category. And I think we have to back up just a little bit to figure out why we don't necessarily understand well the felt quality of universal human suffering. And, and in America, really since the Great Depression, a lot of things have changed. We haven't really until recently seen a great economic downturn. And there's a lot of things that are different. And in that de depression, there, wa there was no social security. Uh, the banks, there was no protection from the government. There was a lot of things going on and there's just, there was universal suffering. And, and that was part of the American condition. And coming out of World War II and moving forward, we put into place a lot of safeguards that would help our, our population not have to encounter suffering like that again. And so we have unemployment benefits, and, and our money is kind of guaranteed in banks that if banks were to fail, and, and we draw Social Security so that when we get to a certain age, 
there's at least a minimum of, of a fixed income that we can kind of continue to live on. And we have these things, and because of it, uh, you put with that medical advances and everything else, because of it, we don't really hit bottom the way people do in the third world, the way people did in the history of the world. With that, a couple other things. We don't have the elderly, elderly living with us so that we are aware, just keenly aware of the struggles of, of the life cycles, of, of aging and health and death and that whole thing. We, it's really kind of removed from the majority of us. And we live in a culture that by and large has a justice system that protects us from just gratuitous evil and gratuitous oppression. We don't have a dictator that can just come and take property or take our life or kill us or, or, or force us into forced labor or on and on and on. And we, we just don't have that situation that was there in the, in the feudal societies of the Middle Ages and everything else. We don't have the kind of suffering right up close to us in our everyday life. We have moments of it. We have instances of it. We have difficulties and we have trials and we're also all on you know, different levels, I'm sure. But by and large, we are an affluent culture in America. And we don't have this, this deep, rich understanding of suffering. We don't know it by acquaintance. The third world, there's a big study that just came out about three or four months ago, and there's a study of the third world all across the world over years and years and years and years, and the study was, if you were going to go anywhere else other than your country, to call that country home, what country would it be? And which country do you think was number one on the list? United States. The whole rest of the world looks to us and they envy. Why? Because of the comfort, the affluence that we enjoy. When the Bible talks about rich, he's not talking about 10% of you here. Um, he's not talking about that guy or that gal. When the Bible talks about the rich, the Bible is talking about us. Do, do you understand that? You compare, we compare, I compare myself to my peers. And so I can feel like I'm behind, and man, if I could only make a little bit more money, and if I could do this, and if I could do that, then I'd be like a little bit more caught up, and I'd feel better about myself, and I'd enjoy life so much more. And we compare ourselves with each other, and so when somebody's way out in front, that's a rich person. I'm just with the pack. I'm a part of the herd. And the truth is, is that is an absolutely wrong, false, bad way of thinking. If Jesus were here today, if Paul were here today, if a prophet of old were here today, he would look at you and say, you are not, you're not seeing it correctly. You are rich. You're rich. Doesn't matter where you're at on that spectrum, doesn't matter about the person on the left or the right. There are so many things that we enjoy when, when we really look at the grand scheme of things, the people make a, making a dollar a day, the, the bulk of the world population making less than $2 a day, when we look at all of this, okay, we're the rich. So we don't really experience human suffering. Now, what does that do to us? What does that do to us? Um, 
here's one thing it does to us. When we don't, when we're not acquainted with human suffering, we are victim, we fall victim to spiritual pride. What begins to emerge is, is our, our natural propensity for tribalistic thinking and class distinctions. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is at every natural disaster or catastrophe or huge instance of mass human suffering, you're always going to find some religious leader who will tell you that it's a curse or it's a act of judgment by God against those people or it's because they were misfortunate because of certain things going on. And what's going on there is a distinction that says we or me or my group, we're over here and we're on a different level or we're in a different category than this group here that was being judged or that was was going to be punished by God or, the, or that is under some kind of curse. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Every time there's going to be at least one major religious leader that will do that. Now, that person's saying what a lot of other people will foolishly think, but when we do that, we're falling into the same pattern that is, that is just natural for us as humans when we're, when we're not seeing everything correctly, like the big picture of everything. Job was a perfect example. Job, in the midst of his suffering, was on this quest to find out the answer. Why am I, am I going through this suffering? What did I do? What is the reason? What is the justification, God, for you bringing this into my life? And, and his group of friends were playing that kind of foolish religious leader saying, well, you're being judged because of this, or you should have been better at that. And there's all these reasons because the friends think they're here and Job is here, and they're going to project onto him a spiritual reality that explains that particular instance of suffering. Does that, I mean, does that make sense? And so Job goes through this whole book, and what does God do at the end? God's like, no, Job, I'm not going to give you an answer. You think you need it? No, I'm not going to give you an answer. You're suffering, Job, but guess what? Um, I'm still sovereign. I'm still over everything. I'm still this guy, and in in the face of this, okay, you just need to trust me. You need to realize how big I am, that I'm not there, um, and you can dictate terms to me and force me into a corner and tell me what I've got to tell you or what I've got to do for you. I'm above it. It's under my control, and you just need to trust it. You need to submit to that. And Job, eventually, at the end of the story, says, you know what? Let me back up. Let me cover my mouth. Okay, you're right, God. You're right. Um, there's, there's a bigger reality going on here than my one instance of suffering. There's a whole universe and a whole world that you've created. There's, there's a bigness going on here that's bigger than my little suffering, um, and I'm going to back up and just trust you with the whole category. I'll trust you. Jesus' disciples pressed him, why was that man born blind? Why that instance of suffering? He's on that level. He's a blind man. He's an untouchable. We're here. We're your disciples. We're in a, a higher class. Why was he punished by God? Did he commit a sin? Did his parents commit a sin? And Jesus is like, no. No. Um, there's another passage where Jesus talks about a, a tower um, in Jerusalem that fell on a bunch of people, crushing a bunch of people, killed 18 people. And he says, he asks rhetorically, were they more sinful than the other people in Jerusalem? 
Were they of a different nature, different class? Were they being judged? Was this an act of divine retribution? Was this because they were somehow cursed? Was this because of something or other and everyone else was on a higher plane? Is that the case? Asked Jesus. And the answer is no. And Jesus goes on and says, um, here's the deal. Repent and, and I've come for salvation and we got to get out of this whole thing as a category. And we see right there a glimpse of what Jesus says in the face of an instance of human suffering. He teaches us that it's not because of one class or another or one group or another or one ethnicity or another. He teaches us that it's the human condition. That suffering is a universal human condition that we are all a part of. There's a a solidarity here, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. We are all in a world that has fallen, that that is decayed, that is twisted and bent, that is groaning to be renewed and restored the way it was. We're all gonna die. We're all gonna fall victim to some kind of disease and get sick. This is the stuff that's this everyday life. And Jesus backs it up and says, I'm not here as a, a religious teacher wanting to, to analyze the intricacies of that instance of suffering. Don't you understand that there's a whole category of human suffering? Because of this world's estrangement and separation from God, the fact that, that there is sin and separation, that it's away from, it's not the way it's supposed to be. Jesus is like, that's what I came for. Like, do you understand the gospel here, guys? Like, I'm not coming to be your um, centerpiece so that you can be the entourage around me because I'm the cool guy or the big dog. Like, that, that's not it. I'm not here to make you cooler. I'm here to fix the fundamental crack in all of reality, the thing that, that gives rise to human suffering as a universal condition. I'm here to heal that and to bring you back with God that you might have the hope of creation being restored. Do you not understand? It's, it's not about the I told you so as you're suffering. I told you so. Ha, ah, I'm, I'm, I'm over here not suffering. You. Like, you're missing the whole point. You're missing the whole point. So when we don't understand human suffering, we do something really silly. We, we, we think we're not in it, and then we try and judge or come up with reasons or explanations for why other people are in it. And that's a misunderstanding of what's going on. It's a misunderstanding of where we are. And if we get rid of that, if we really understand human suffering rightly, it's a lot easier for us to have solidarity and to say, it's... Those people aren't awkward or untouchable or getting what they deserve or anything like that. They're people just like me that are hurting, that God cares about. Jesus came and the whole, the, a lot of his teachings, the parable of the Good Samaritan was, was just trying to get us to understand the most basic of things like, do you, do you get it? There's the guy beat up um, an inch of his death, robbed, mistreated and abused in the ditch. And here's all these religious people going by thinking that that has nothing to do with their religion. Jesus is like, it has everything to do with their religion. It has everything to do with it. So here's this, the least likely guy coming and ministering to the person in the ditch. And, and Jesus is like, that's what I want. You see, that's what I want. And what we, what we, what we get out of that is, is a picture of Jesus. And what we understand is that Jesus is kind of God in the flesh, that we get to, to know God's character and God's heart by looking at Christ. And we get to look at Christ and we say, he cares. 
He cares about human suffering. When he comes up on Lazarus' tomb and, and Lazarus' dead, he cries. Jesus wept. And so this objective distancing of thing takes us away from where we're actually supposed to be as Christians. Let me take it to a whole different level and hopefully you understand where I'm going with this. But separation and distance is an, is an amazingly powerful thing that's usually used for, for bad. Okay. The Nazis, when they first came into power, one of the first things they did was they stripped Jews as a whole ethnic group. They stripped them of citizenship in Germany. They, they just took away their citizenship, and that created a whole other class that weren't really authentic Germans. And then after a period of time, they made them move and put them in ghettos where they were separated. And you see that all of these things are separating and separating and making it more and more other. And so we wonder, like, how did all these German people just kind of go along with so much of what was happening there? It was a part of a long process, and you get acclimated to seeing people as having nothing to do with you. There's no solidarity there. And in our affluence here in America, we, and in our churches, heaven's sake, we've so distanced ourselves from suffering that we don't see the connection. So we theorize and theologize and spiritualize instead of just rolling up our sleeves and saying, this could get messy, it could get costly, and it could be really hard, but I'm going to enter into this pain, and I'm going to try and help this person. That's what Christ would have me do. How did we get so far from seeing suffering or hurting people as an actual a, a part of our faith? Like, how did we get so far from that? Um, two things. Um, how many of you guys have heard the phrase, the social gospel? Just show of hands. Just heard that phrase, the social gospel. All right, we'll add it in. The first ones is we've made Christianity a rich man's religion. We've made Christianity a rich man's religion. You ask a certain set of questions based on your starting point. And if you start with um, a, a rich man's perspective, our cultural affluence... And you say, what makes Christianity relevant to me? What can I get out of it? You begin getting strange answers like um, ways to organize your life or ways to get ahead or ways to improve certain things. And it, it becomes a tool of self-maximization and our own glory. And we begin to think that Christianity is there to aid us in becoming magnificent people, maximizing our life, just increasing our, our whole kind of little things that we would call us and ours and, and our dreams and our ability to lay hold of our dreams and, and everything that is in my little network. And we really begin to make Christianity serve that. And we, we don't realize that that's like a narrow sliver of what our faith is really supposed to be about. And here's what I mean. We take the Bible as a cookbook and we shake it out and we distill it for those principles that are relevant to us. And if we're not surrounded by suffering and if we're not really dealing with suffering, if we're not oppressed, 
Um, the ones that we find have to do with some relationships here, some stuff here, my own growth and wisdom here, and those are the ones that are relevant to us. Does that make sense? What do you think would have been relevant about Scripture to a slave in the South in the early 1800s or late 1700s? It's a different starting point. What would have been relevant about Scripture then would have been the same thing that would have been relevant about God to the Israelites in captivity in Egypt, and that would have been this, that the whole of it understands where I'm at, and that this God who's driving it, is a, is he, he's a redeemer. It's, it's our God who saves. That God hears our cries. He hears the cries of the oppressed. And that God will come for us. And he will deliver us. And he will save us. And it's this whole package. And we come under that. And we have our hope there. And our faith there. And we trust. And everything about us is there. And it informs the way we sing. And the way we worship. And the way we pray. And it is all about this God saving and rescuing people. It's not this one little verse for a rich person to maximize one little area of our life and, and continue to kind of gloss over our life and make it even prettier and prettier and paint it even a little better and a little better. Like there's a, such a different tone coming from, from those people. And I, and I want you to kind of identify with them because here's how I want you to all of a sudden understand Scripture in a way maybe that you've never seen it before. What was Exodus about? Exodus about, was about God saving his people from slavery, from the hand of the oppressor, and leading them out. The bulk of the Old Testament is prophets and minor prophets speaking in a, in a real, relatively short window of time, a couple hundred years, where both the, the northern tribes and then the southern tribes are carted off and brutalized and oppressed by other kingdoms and turned into slaves and the bulk of our scriptures is talking to these people and saying, trust me, trust me, don't walk away, come underneath me, trust me. Um, I am the God who saves, I am the God who hears, I am the God who will restore you. And that much of the scripture is there. And we talked about the book of Job already and Jesus in his gospels, but we could go even further to um, James talking about pure religion is this. It's, it's looking after orphans and widows in their distress. See, dis distress is a real thing. It's a real instance of suffering. And you care about that. That's the height of religion. That's pure religion. There's nothing false in it. It's you loving people that can give you nothing in return. I, I once read that passage when I was a new believer and I couldn't understand it. So I made a, I was like, I don't understand this. So I got to figure it out. So I was like, okay, well, how do I figure this out? Well, where are orphans? I don't know where orphans are. Where are widows? I don't know where widows are. I was like, oh, I'll go to an old folks home. Um, so I started at Clemson every Sunday. My friends would go to this little sandwich shop, and that's where all the cute girls were going, and, and I was bitter, and I'm driving to this old folks' home and not going like everyone else. And, and there's 15 minutes out into the countryside of, of South Carolina and got there and started building a relationship, and I thought, this is going to be great. I'll build some relationships. I'll serve. Um, I'm going to get some great World War II stories. I'm going to get some really cool things that way, and nothing. I mean, nothing like that at all, and, and I... I it was like really draining, and I heard a lot of the same stories over and over, and nothing about World War II. And, and um, 
And then I thought, well, maybe, like, here's a cool guy. I'll, I'll smoke a cigar with him. And, like, he, you know, he, he can't get out. He wants me to go get some cigars. I'm like, Dad, it'll be cool. I'll, like, go get some cigars. And here's this older guy. I'm going to be smoking cigars with him. And then a week later when I come back, I had a, a little girl from Clemson, another gal that was with part of a different group, came up to me and asked me to help her. And this guy had been grabbing her, grabbing her butt. You know you like it. I mean, he's an 80-year-old guy. She's like, can I, you know, so I, so here I am having to confront this guy. You know, I'm like, this, this just sucks. So I'm like driving back from the old folks home, you know, months into this whole thing, telling God how much it sucks. And I'm like, this, this is nothing about this. And, and all of a sudden I realized, oh, okay, I kind of get it. I just keep pouring out. I'm not getting anything in return. God, and he's like, okay, now you get it, Ken. Um, All of life is governed by that reciprocity and give and take. But widows and orphans and vulnerable, vulnerable people, they have nobody that will take care of them, partly because they have nothing to give in return, and it is just an endless pouring out, but you do it because you care, you just learned about my kind of love, Ken. You see, that's how I love you. I don't need anything from you. Like, I don't need your money. I don't need your food. In the Old Testament, for a while there, they began to think that somehow through giving a, a sacrifice, like that food somehow ended up feeding God. And God was like, I don't need your food. Like, you, you do sacrifices to remind yourself that that. I'm primary and that you're submitting to that and, and that you're secondary, but don't get in the idea that I need something from you. Like, I don't need anything from you. I love you. All I want is for you to accept that love and to value it and to appreciate it and for that to, to somehow teach you a little bit about me and what I would want from you. And why is it pure religions, orphans and widows? Because that's the same kind of love that God has for us. I don't remember where, I, don't, I have no idea where I'm at. The, so human suffering, like, we don't understand it as a category. We, we make ourselves immune and we begin drawing up cat, other categories and class distinctions and pointing fingers and we separate and then we separate some more and then we separate some more and then there's really no sense of responsibility or felt altruism that's required to deal with this. And Jesus says, no, I'll get right in the middle of it. And God says, you know, you know how I deal with it? It's called the incarnation. I came in the person of Christ. I put myself right in the middle of it. Can you do that too? Can you just go put yourself right in the middle of it with a burn barrel or sleeping on a soccer field in Haiti or something less glorious like just taking a part of your budget that you don't really have to give but tightening up your belt so that you can send it to somebody else that can give it to people who really need it even if you don't get the credit? Can, can, you, can you care enough about it, see the solidarity enough about it that you can do something? The other thing that goes on here is we've gotten a really weird thing out of religion and that it has nothing to do with this kind of thing like earthquakes in Haiti. You know, that's, yeah, I'm, I'm human. I feel some kind of compassion. Like, it's really sad. It tugs at me here and I might donate, like, to the Red Cross, like, my 10 bucks. That really, that's, that's over here, you know. Um, it really has nothing to do with church, though. 
really has nothing to do with Christianity. That, those are different things. and They're both important maybe, but they're, 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 they're in different categories. How did we get there? Um, in the early 1900s, again, no social programs. We didn't have any government federal controls on businesses. Robber barons, the big ty- tycoons, you have child labor, you have horrible working conditions, you have all these kinds of things. It was just a different society back then. And you had a guy by the name of Walter Rauschenbusch who went into Hell's Kitchen in the Bronx to become a pastor in the late 1800s, and he begins to experience this kind of, of injustice and need and poverty and, and realizes that our religion should somehow say something to this. So Rauschenbusch goes and studies, uh, and he's affected by German, what's called higher criticism, um, and comes back, and, and there's this real awkward tension. And so he's trying to bring this thing that says, the kingdom of heaven is here, um, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, It's kind of the cry of what became the social gospel. Walter Rauschenbusch birthed, in some sense, the social gospel. Wrote a book called Christianity and the Social, uh, social Crisis, I think 1907. And it really begins this movement because right in the middle of that, you have the liberal churches with higher criticism. Lower criticism is, what do I make of what Paul says? Did Paul mean this by this or did Paul mean this by that? It's hermeneutics. It's how do you interpret something? That's called lower criticism. It's looking inside a book of scripture and analyzing it. Higher criticism is, where did that book come from? Who wrote it? How do we look at linguistics and dating and, and other types of things and manuscripts and decide where it belongs, who we attribute it to? And higher criticism was a tool that really came along and basically neutered the, the Bible of any sense of div- divine authority. Does that make sense? So there's a lot of doubt in the early 1900s. The, the liberal uh, denominations, what we would know as liberal denominations today, they used to be non-liberal denominations, but a lot of mainline denominations were affected by this, and a, a real distrust came in about the Bible, and that led them to take it from God's word as authoritative to it's a good religious book that has informed our tradition over a long period of time. And, and it kind of comes down to this level, and if you don't really trust scripture, the very next thing to go, it's not talked about often, but the very next thing to go is your belief in the afterlife. If you, if you don't think Scripture is authoritative, I guarantee you, you will have some significant doubts about heaven real quickly. And the more doubts you have about heaven, the more you just say, it's hard for us to talk about the pie in the sky stuff, the then and there stuff. Let's slowly start changing the percentage of what we talk about to heaven on earth stuff. Because I know Jesus would be about love. I read the, the Sermon on the Mount. I know he's about ethics. So let's, let's try and begin to make the predominant thing that we do here in our Christianity about really helping people. And it's not that that's wrong, but that becomes the offering, so to speak. And they get involved and say, let's bring about through social reform a, a better reality. Like a, It's going to keep growing better and better. Why? Because we don't really believe in original sin because that came with an authoritative Bible. And if we get rid of that, we think we can make society better. If we reform it, if we put in checks and balance and structures and things like that, we can, we can just keep growing to a better place that, that it should be. And Jesus taught us that kind of love. And so Rauschenbusch, this pastor that cared about people, but as a part of this whole movement, um, it goes this way. Now that became called the social gospel. It didn't deal as much about heaven 
and, and salvation in terms of sin, it dealt with injustices in the so- social structures of life and poverty that way. Does that make sense? Um, a lot of things go on. So Princeton Seminary, I think it was 1927, there's finally a break. Princeton Seminary, which was the kind of bastion of Calvinistic conservative theology, all of a sudden reorganizes itself and goes very liberal, buys into higher criticism. And a guy by the name of um, J. Gresham Machen um, reacts and ends up leaving Princeton Seminary and starting Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. Um, Francis Schaeffer said that this is probably the most influential moment, theologically speaking, of the 20th century. And the culmination of 20 years of, of slowly, uh, a slow encroaching liberal thought all of a sudden breaks. And from that moment on, you really have two different tracks going, going different directions. Now, the head of steam that the social gospel had um, petered out in, in the World War, like World War II era and that kind of a thing. And, and you didn't really see or hear as much about it on the liberal side after World War II, it was always there, and they just kind of did the thing. You saw more of it on the conservative side with a backlash. Uh, in the early 60s, Kennedy does the Peace Corps. It kind of, it's kind of like a PR campaign around the world, 64, I think. And it's, and it's uh, I think it was 64, but it's kind of a PR campaign because you have all the African states becoming independent and all these other things going on. You have the Soviet Union, and so we needed to, we were put with the old colonizers. We were seen in America as, you know, other, the third world seeing America, we were seen as like the British and like the French, those colonizers. And so people re- were reacting to that. And so here you have Kennedy saying, we got to get away from that. We got to serve these people. And so he starts the Peace Corps. And, and Christians are reacting to that kind of thing. Peace Corps is not a bad thing. But we're re- reacting to that kind of thing. Missions organizations, which was r- real simple, um, when you're sending people to the mission field and they don't believe in Jesus, people that believe in Jesus kind of get a little frustrated that their money's going there. And so if you're a younger generation, you're like, man, how come my grandparents and my parents, it was like always denominational split after denominational split after denominational split. Have you ever wondered that? It was really driven by money and missions with this whole liberal conservative distinction. Is our money can't be funding missionaries that don't even believe in Jesus. And so you see kind of splits that way and splits that way in all these different denominations. And the conservative church got really, 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 really leery of anything that smacked to the social gospel. Poverty, just plain old compassion and helping people. Anything that had to do with advocacy, working on social structures. And the conservative side made it all about we're going to save souls. All about we're going to save souls. And if you're not saving souls, it's the, it's, the, it's the social gospel and it's bad. And we lost something in there as the conservative church that love is its own end. It is good. Love is never wrong. And somehow we moved so far off on the extreme that instead of saying we need to love, but we also need Jesus, we let go of love and thought we're going to just be all about Jesus, which the irony is you can't be all about Jesus if you're not about love. You see what I'm saying? And in that, we've become really judgmental and all sorts of things that we're very familiar with in the last 30 years. All that to say, church is all about Jesus and wearing your whatever the latest bracelet is and, and whatever. And it's all about me telling you you've got to go 
preach to your next door neighbor and who you got to go say is wrong because they're um, living immorally or whatever. I mean, it becomes about this. And we're not very familiar if you've grown up in the church with a real organic way to just come along and love on people. A cup of cold water in Jesus' name. Helping an AIDS orphan in Africa, even if they don't get saved. Jesus didn't say to people that he helped, okay, listen, if you come back after I help you and let me preach to you for two hours and agree to, to become one of my like, you know, card-carrying followers, then I'll help you. You don't see that sense of, of um, loving people only is okay if it's a means to an end of saving their soul. I was in a church once where it was, it was really interesting. It was like an idea of loving people was like, but how does that get them into the church? But does it have to? In, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, look, you know, the greatest of these is love. And if you have all these other things and you're super spiritual and you perform like miracles and all, you speak in the tongues of angels and you're a prophet, like all of it's worthless if it's not got love. Love is the highest thing. It's its own end. It's never wrong. And instead of being either or, if we love, we're not good Christians and we don't, we don't believe in the gospel. And if we believe in the gospel and we send out missionaries, we can't then love too. It would muddy the whole thing up. Like this either or thinking on a scale like that's wrong. It's both and. We get graded on our love, and we get graded on our, uh, our willingness to be uh, witnesses for Jesus Christ. The reason I do this is, I, is because Christ has done this for me. I serve sacrificially because he died for me. You don't have to believe in it, but that's just, that's just how it is. And I'm going to love you regardless of whether you believe in it, because I'm going to be graded on my love and on my ability to be a witness, not ashamed of the gospel, not ashamed of Jesus. And so somehow we got to bring this back in so when the earthquake happens in Haiti, a bunch of Christians think, I kind of, I mean, I kind of care. So I'll do something because, you know, I mean, I kind of have something stern in me, but that really doesn't have anything to do with my Christianity or church. Um, I'll just do both. And the answer is it has everything to do with church, everything to do with your Christianity. Paul, when he's over in the, the Greek nations, looks back at Jerusalem, in the middle, they're in the middle of a famine. They don't have food to eat, and there's no, like, government program or whatever. The Romans weren't really good at, you know, welfare. And Paul takes up a collection from those churches. He says, there should be solidarity, and this is a matter of faith. You guys are all brothers in this, and, and one body that includes Jerusalem and you guys. I want to take up a collection, and there's going to be a pot of money, and I want you to, to elect two trustworthy people from among your midst to come with me to go deliver this aid to these people. Do you know what that's called in a, in a different way? It's called famine relief. It's called famine relief. If I were to say to you, let's take a collection up, and we have this relationship with world relief, and they, just like the trusted people that Paul had come, they're a trusted conduit. They're respected. They're proven. They're they're reliable. They're a great conduit to make sure that our money goes to the needy people that need it in the churches, distributed through the churches in Haiti to the most vulnerable people, the orphans and the widows and the people that are suffering. Okay? If, if I were to say, let's take up a collection and give it to World Relief, that's the exact same thing that Paul did. Things like earthquake disasters and World Relief, these have everything to do with our faith, everything to do with church. Everything to do with Christianity, it's all part of this organic life in response to this category called human suffering. 
And then at the end of the day, we're going to step back and we're going to say, man, um, like, like the wise teacher in Ecclesiastes, I can run my life trying to get, 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 get. But ashes to ashes and dust to dust, it's all vanity. It is all vanity. And then we're going to begin to realize that we, the rich, affluent people, are, we're always asking God for stuff. God, help the Dallas Cowboys win today. God, help me on my test. God, if I only had a little bit more money. God, help me with this. And what we don't realize in all of that is that God's over here and going, do you not realize that you're the doctor in this equation? You don't need anything from me. I'm waiting for you to commit yourself to me to be used to help the people that really do have something to pray about. That are sitting there like in the south and, and singing spirituals of you know, swing low, sweet chariot, coming forth to carry me home. And you're there just desperately crying out to God, deliver us and save us. Just come low and take us out of this oppression. This is suffering. And that we get to come along somehow and God will use us to help the people that he cares about. And over here we're asking for stupid stuff. For, you know, I need a newer car, or I need a newer game console, or I need the latest you know, Xbox game. And God, you, can you just maximize my life? And God is like, you have no idea. Pure religion is this, that you would sacrifice for those people that can give you nothing, nothing in return to you. And that you would be so in tune with that because you know my heart, you know what I care about, and you love it too. It's so close to you. The, the, the amazing thing about an earthquake like this because of media is stuff that is so far from us, the human condition, human suffering, is all of a sudden brought so close that for a brief little window until it's, it's replaced on CNN, for a brief little window, we empathize with true suffering. And in that, that little, little window, that little moment, God might be able to do something to teach us, to rewire us, to all of a sudden shake us out so that we realize um, we're not like Judas. We're not supposed to be coming to Christ because of what we're going to get out of it in terms of human status. But we're like the, some of the other apostles that left everything, gave up everything cashed in all their popularity chips and just they were just there look i'm gonna screw it up every now and then jesus but you got me what am i supposed to do teach me i want to learn how this works we are the rich and it's hard for the rich to inherit the kingdom of of heaven if we really understood our capacity individually and corporately as a church body our capacity for change, our capacity for ministry, our capacity for compassion, our capacity to give, to love, to serve. If we really understood that, because we weren't spending so much time focused on the next thing that we need, I think God would actually give us an assignment. He would call us to something. He would commission us. He would send His Holy Spirit with us to go and do something absolutely amazing and filling because what I realized with that whole nursing home thing after a while is though even though I, I wasn't getting any of the World War II stories, I began to realize that's joy. It filled my belly. 
I was satisfied. I was doing the right thing. Nothing that deli after church with all his friends could compete with being with God, doing something right. We do something else in America, and we're going to close on this. We promise God's presence where he doesn't promise it. How many of you have heard um, Jesus' words, and lo, I will be with you even to the end of the age? You know who he promised that to and, and what the circumstances were? Jesus took a tradition that God began. Moses, it's okay. I'm calling you to this task to go free those oppressed people. I'm calling you to it. It's scary. You feel like you're going to die, like someone's going to kill you because they don't like what you're doing, right? But I'll go with you. I will go with you, Joshua. Joshua, you're going to go take over the land. You're going to be like a military commander and you're afraid. You're counting numbers and you're trying to like measure it out, weigh the scales. You're, you're, you're going to panic. It doesn't matter. You just be strong. You be courageous. I will go with you. And then more and more examples in the Old Testament. God commissions somebody to be a part of his redemptive plan and then he says, don't worry because it's not your strength. I'll go with you. And then we get Jesus saying to his disciples, when you get up to teach and you get in, in front of like rulers that want to throw you in prison, don't worry about what to say, Matthew 19, or how to say it because at that time you'll be given what to say because it won't be you speaking but the spirit of my, my father speaking through you. Don't you worry. You go do it. Be strong. Be courageous. I'll go with you. God will go with you. All of a sudden, Matthew 18, he commissions his disciples. I'm leaving now. And he says this, you go and make disciples. You go and make disciples. Give your life away for others. And you get on the road. You go show people what love is. You tell them that you're a witness of me. You teach them. You nurture them. You disciple them. You go do that. It's going to cost you your life probably. You go do that and guess what? Lo, I will be with you even to the end of the age. If you do that, if I'm commissioned, if you go with me, if you follow me, if you trust me, I'll be with you. Jesus never said if you sit on your couch eating potato chips, wanting to maximize your life because you're really self-centered, that you can always just reach over and know that Jesus is with you, that his spirit's with you because that's a nice baby comfort blanket. Jesus never said that. He called us, he, I mean, he called us to live like he lived, to be his body. We are his expression now in this world to love people, to teach people, to be witnesses to people, to give away our lives that others might live. We're his body. And when we do that, when we're in concert with that, when we're in harmony with that, the power of God's Holy Spirit will be with us. Christ will be with us. We will have the authority we need, the power we need. If we don't do that, we're deluding ourselves. We're deluding ourselves. I am so desperate to, to in, in every full sense of the word, play church with everyone. I, I believe as a lot of you believe, I want us all who believe to come together and to be able to know the joy and the satisfaction of just throwing in and doing this together, trusting God, living that adventure. Um, and, and so you're invited in. Um, all your ideas, all your energy, all the things you want to do, 